Welcome to Securiosity for November 8th. I'm Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel, bringing you the best weekly wrap-up of InfoSec News. So much for Twitter's good vibes. A bad insider threat case. We will talk about what it means for the big social media players moving forward. In our interview, we talk with Casey Ellis, CTO and founder of Bug Crowd. Casey stopped by the office to talk about a bunch of the big news items we've been seeing in the past few weeks. Acquisitions across the board this week. Money never stops in cybersecurity. You all know that. And we will break it all down right now. The Department of Justice charged two former Twitter employees for spying on users at the behest of the Saudi Arabian government. According to charges unsealed on Wednesday, the employees accessed the personal information of Saudi descendants, including email addresses, phone numbers, and IP addresses that could reveal user location. One of the former employees was charged with accessing the personal information of nearly 6,000 Twitter accounts. The charges raise questions about whether Twitter and possibly other social media companies are equipped to protect user information from insider threats and spying. Greg, how did this go unnoticed for so long? Uh, I'm not sure because you would figure a company like Twitter or any big company would get involved with you know behavior analytics, segmentation, or anything that would be like, hmm, we have somebody that's uh, head of partnerships – accessing user accounts out of nowhere. Like if you have a a robust SOC, you should have at least one piece of software that would throw a flag up on uh, all of this being accessed. And it wasn't. And it turned out that this was all linked to uh, the Khashoggi killing last year. It looked like uh, these two Twitter employees were spying on one of Khashoggi's close friends, close associates, uh, on the the behest of the crown prince. I mean, this is spy stuff, and this is like your typical insider threat stuff. Like, this is really, really dangerous. This is dangerous stuff. You, you know, we can talk about all the technology security stuff that we want to, but this is something, you know, totally different and, and something dangerous in its own right that there's never going to be a technology solution for. Now, is there any um, word on whether or not they were already working for the Crown Prince before they went to Twitter? No. Or did it uh, happen after? From the criminal complaint, it looks like they were approached once they were fingered as a Twitter employee. They were approached in 2014 uh, because uh, one of uh, the, the charge, I believe the gentleman that has actually been arrested, was head of partnerships for Twitter in the North Africa and Middle Eastern and European region. Mm-hmm. So again, if you, I mean, this was easy to find out. If you look on LinkedIn, you can see one, he works there, and two, he's of Saudi descent. So he was approached in London by somebody that uh, was working for uh, a charity, charity in quotes, I say, because it was really just uh, a shell organization right. to, to hide the, the true intent. And he was given a bunch of money to feed uh, the Saudi family or people working on behalf of the Saudi family feed information about Saudi dissidents. Uh, uh, the the gentleman that was close to Khashoggi wasn't the only one. Uh, there was a certain list, a uh, handful of people that were tracked. And I mean, we, we had talked about this. You know, it's funny. We had talked about whether NSO has been used to track uh, Khashoggi or any of these dissidents. And I'm sure that it has too. But it's clear that there are like multiple lines to track dissidents especially within like the Middle East. It's, oh, we're, we're just not going to use what's technically capable. We're going to use the human aspect too. And if that means writing a check to some Twitter employees, we'll do that. No problem. 
I mean, absolutely fascinating. And I guess, you know, you, you don't see security um, workers at federal agencies on LinkedIn. I guess you're not going to see Twitter right, big data companies yeah. on LinkedIn anymore either. I mean, that's – wow. Yeah, I mean, even if it's not on LinkedIn, this is – again, this is just espionage. Right. This is espionage stuff. This is what spies do. They try to recruit assets and unfortunately sometimes it goes – awfully wrong for, you know, democratic values. I mean, I, I, I'm sure there have been instances of the CIA recruiting um, sure. recruiting assets in different companies across the world, whether it's China, Iran, Russia, whatever. I mean, this is espionage. It's, it, it's extremely upsetting that, you know, the script has been flipped and that it possibly resulted in an American being murdered. Right. So for years, Google has been playing whack-a-mole with hackers who slip malicious apps into its Play Store. Acknowledging that it was a losing proposition, Google on Wednesday announced it would partner with ESET, Lookout, and Zimperium to flag malware before it ends up in the Play Store. The three mobile security firms will plug their AV scanning engines into Google Play Store to add an extra layer of security vetting. The App Defense Alliance, as the partnership is called, will help make some of the 2.5 billion Android devices more secure. But it may not be a panacea for the problem. I mean, Jen, do you think that this will finally help the Play Store be safe? I think it's going to help. And I think we're also going to learn how good ESET, Lookout, and Superium are at what they do. Yeah. Um, I mean, ESET is pretty good, I would say. Uh, of the three that – look, I, all three I respect a lot. But I would say ESET is in another class above uh, the other two. It, that really does not matter though for this. What I think matters is the fact that – this needed to happen anyway. I mean, you don't see Apple doing this. And, and we've talked, spent hours talking about the, the, the Play Store and how right. its sort of open-walled system um, has really led to this point. So anything that they could do to help secure it is good. But I'm, we're talking about Google here. Like we're not just talking about some run-of-the-mill app company. Like I'm surprised that Google doesn't have something in-house that – can do a better job. And I know that it, it's not like they haven't been concentrating on it. I know that they've leveraged um, some some of their own AI capabilities to try to knock out malware. But the fact that they're trying to bring in outside help as well and make it sort of an alliance proves that, well, maybe they're having a tougher time than we thought. I mean, clearly they haven't been doing a good job, so they needed to bring in more help. I mean, it's not like we were malicious code free by any regards. Right. And at the same time, I, I go back to also the, the quality of these apps. Like, just make one flashlight app. Like, it's okay for Google to have just – the Play Store can have one flashlight app. That's okay. We don't need 75, 100, 200 flashlight apps sitting out there on the Play Store. Just make one and just – Make it that way because a lot of these are – a lot of the malware served on the Google Play Store comes with these like simplistic apps, whether it's a flashlight, a calculator, a device driver or, or, or a file um, menu or something like that. Yeah. Or some weird game. Like just do a better job of like not auditing the ecosystem but you know picking and choosing what apps get approved. I mean – they take much less time to approve apps than Apple has historically, um, at least from the startups I've seen over the years putting apps out on stores. 
they just don't seem like they've been really doing a lot of checking. So hopefully this does that. And Agreed. maybe it'll keep it short still. Agreed. To put a dent in ransomware attacks, the FBI invited the country's top experts to Pittsburgh in September. Over two days of briefings, attendees traded tips on combating the more rampant strains of ransomware, studied the recent widespread infections in Texas, and heard from a firm that specialized in negotiation with attackers, sometimes the FBI advises against. The Bureau asked companies to look for ways to share more victim data anonymously, and those companies got an update to the latest law enforcement investigations. Greg, what else happened in this meeting? So... It was really interesting to see who exactly was there. Obviously, the FBI was there, but I know there were some representatives from DHS. There were some representatives from NSA because they, they are all really starting to work together in a really positive fashion. So uh, it was good that everybody was in the room from that standpoint. But you had uh, private companies like Kroll, the consulting firm Kroll was there. Uh, you had this really interesting company called uh, Coveware, which uh, I don't know if everybody is familiar with Coveware. Coveware actually, as a last resort, they are like a, a ransomware incident response okay. uh, company. But with that, they have made a name for themselves for, okay, even though the FBI says don't pay the ransom, if you need to pay the ransom, we'll try to negotiate a price with you and they actually find the hackers that are responsible for the the ransomware strain and try to figure out you know a way to remedy the situation um carnegie mellon experts were there ibm i know ibm was there as well so uh we're talking top flight companies that, right. that were in the room that really looked around and watched what has unfolded in the past year with particular regard to cities in Baltimore, San Antonio, what happened in Florida, uh, Georgia, and said, "Okay, oh, we're not we're not doing too well right now with this. We, we need to figure out uh, better lines of communication, better best practices. Like, let's figure out how we get information back and forth." And a big part of that was law enforcement officials asked private companies to look for ways to better anonymize victim data because that's a big thing for companies. They just don't want to hand over all that data to the government. They want to be able to protect you know, their client base and protect their privacy rules. Right. And uh, so – but obviously they you know, want to help and make sure that this doesn't happen in the future. So they're looking for ways to anonymize data. And then they're also – you know, figuring out ways to better streamline the investigations because I'm guessing they've been messy. I mean, they have been. We know we've had FBI experts say at our events, particularly after the Sam Sam ransomware outbreak, that the FBI totally changed the way it handled ransomware investigations. They were probing every individual infection, like it was its own, each individual crime case. And now the FBI groups the investigations by ransomware variants. If they're seeing Sam Sam or Ryuk or name your ransomware strain, if they're seeing a bunch of it, they'll just put one task force team or a bunch of agents on just that strain instead of just going from case to case to city to city to business to business or what have you. So it's clear that Everybody sort of recognized that, okay, this is, this is more than just script kitties and cyber criminals looking for a quick payday. This can quickly sink cities and really gum up the way that 
you know, we all work and depend on city and state governments. So let's figure out a better way to remedy the situation when incidents like this in the future occur. Do they think that number of incidents reported is going to go up now that they're going to keep things more anonymous? I don't know that the incidents are necessarily going to go up. I In terms just, of being uh, reported, not Yeah, more. I mean, yeah, maybe, uh, maybe. And yes, that's another thing that was talked about at the meeting, getting, you know, companies or state agencies, just basically anybody that's been hit to come forward because – I mean, even agencies that spend hundreds of millions of dollars on combating cyber threats, one, they don't always come forward, and two, resources are stretched thin. So th- that that needs to you know, be top of mind for everybody in the room. And getting right. back to the question of making sure that more reporting happens, um, I-, I think so. I mean, I don't necessarily think you're going to see Kroll or companies going – Call us, call us, call us because, look, there's – nobody wants to admit things went bad from a technology perspective. But I think it's upon the FBI and, and the, the federal government overall to be like, OK, we get it. We, we understand the situation better than we have before. You can start to trust us a little more than what you've read in previous reports. So from ransomware to the other most popular – Cybercrime, uh, business email compromise. Scammers fleeced the publishing conglomerate Nikkei out of $29 million by impersonating an executive at the international firm. Nikkei America, the U.S. subsidiary of the Japanese company, said on October 30th that one of its employees transferred the funds equivalent to roughly 3.2 billion Japanese yen based on fraudulent instructions by a malicious third party. It's the latest high-profile business email compromise attack carried out by fraudsters who exploit employees' inherent trust in other people in their organization. The company didn't provide any specific details, saying that it only quickly realized it had been defrauded and that the firm had notified law enforcement in the U.S. and Hong Kong. Jen, I have so many questions about that. $29 million in an email. Yeah, Gone in a flash. I just can't imagine that someone could make a request to someone that says transfer twenty nine million dollars, and you do it. I mean, are you transferring that kind of money all the time? It's it's just yeah, it's social engineering. I mean, they, I, they, and they might know. They might know and figure that this is you know a Nikkei, yeah, like twenty nine million. It's uh, I don't I don't know two, three grand to any small business, I guess. Whatever. Because this is a pretty big company. So $29 million, I'm sure they're sending hundreds of millions of dollars around all the time. And it $29 just, million is just a blip on the radar. Maybe. That being said, yeah, I mean, this is social engineering. Maybe. It's so easy. It's, it's so easy just to be like, hey, you, you send an email at the right time of day. You, you learn a thing or two about uh, the company. You know, you do some reconnaissance. And you send that email and send that wire number and boom, there goes eight figures. I don't know. There's got to be like a threshold amount in which you like pick up the phone and call someone's assistant and say, could you verify that I was supposed to move? I mean, that's going to become standard dollars. practice at this point. And it should be for anything that, yeah, I mean, it always should threshold, have been. Right. I mean, we're not talking. I mean, 
If this had been a million dollars, okay, but this is twenty nine million dollars. And and look, we had said that there's no specific details. Maybe there was that threshold. Maybe they just did, whoever took this money did a really good job. I mean, that that happens when you have uh, you or know social engineering. Or maybe the employee is involved. I mean, who knows? Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, it, it could this, be another insider threat. Yeah, um, it, it's hard without the specific details. But yeah, I mean, I had a conversation during Cyber Week. With somebody that was asking about, you know, and this was a small business talking about how they feared their accounting firm, which was an outside accounting firm, really didn't adhere to cybersecurity best practices. And I told her that, yeah, uh, that that's good that you have that fear because of this thing called business email compromise. And if you're getting weird emails at 4 a.m. saying, hey, we, we didn't get this payment. Can you send us some money? That's probably a scam. Conversely, if you're worried about them, you should tell them. Any email or any sort of correspondence that you get from me over a certain amount of money, you need to pick up the phone right away and verify it because I'm probably not going to ever send an email for that. I'm probably going to do it over phone anyway, but you need to like double and triple check that I definitely want this money sent. So it just goes to show from small and medium businesses all the way up to international, you know, stock trading and media companies, this can happen. I would also think that's an amount of money, though, that requires like two signatures. It, um, it you know, should. It just, it's such it an should. odd thing to me that like that could happen. Right. Still. So defense attorney for alleged Vault 7 leaker Joshua Schultz filed a motion Tuesday asking a judge to dismiss five charges prosecutors brought against Schultz under the Espionage Act and federal larceny law because they are unconstitutionally overboard and void for vagueness. Schultz's attorney asked the judge to accept a pretrial motion which argues that the Espionage Act and federal larceny statutes do not apply in this case. Greg, does this have any chance of becoming a reality? I'm not a lawyer. But, yeah, for the sake of this discussion, I would imagine that if I developed hacking tools for the CIA, right, then turned around, packaged them up, and shipped them off to WikiLeaks, that the U.S. government, with all of its wherewithal and intelligence when it comes to the law, would find a nice corner of the Espionage Act and go, yeah, this case fits into that. So the unconstitutionally overbroad part and void for vagueness, I don't think we're being vague here. Like, I I think this is pretty open (laughs) and shut. You built spy stuff that was classified. You pushed it out to make it unclassified. Therefore... The Espionage Act is probably going to apply again. I'm not a lawyer. Sounds like 20 I'm, years in I'm, prison to me. I'm probably not far off in saying, no, I, I think that we found the, the right letter of the law to apply this case to. Yeah. Sounds like 20 years in prison. This without question. This case is done? insane. No, no, it's, it's <laughs> far from done. We haven't even gotten to the actual trial yet because remember, this – is the guy who also is now facing additional charges for sneaking cell phones into his his jail cell in order to try to contact journalists to, you know, smear everybody else involved with it. And the lawyers for him on the espionage charges now have to serve as witnesses to his state of mind for the charges having to do with the jail cell contraband. It's a mess. 
It so is Greg, an absolute mess. Have you received a phone call? I no, I no? did not. I and I that's kind of sad. I, I wouldn't. I'm yeah. I wouldn't know it anyway. If if it came came up because I'm guessing that he does not have my number. That's all right. We've been covering this case fine without it, and right. I, I'm sure that his lawyers would not let him speak anymore based on the letters that he has pushed <laughs> out. I'm sure his lawyers would just say no, kindly, just shut up. Um, it's it, it, this is just another like just another notch in the belt of how like insane this case has been. Yeah, and, and yeah, can't can't wait for the trial to start. <laughs> Jail time. And a reminder that insider threat can plague companies of all kinds. The security vendor Trend Micro said Tuesday that a former employee stole the personal data of some of its customers and then sold it to an unknown third party. Trend Micro first the caught wind of the stolen information when several of its users began receiving unannounced phone calls from people impersonating Trend Micro support staff, which appeared to be a scam because Trend Micro says it's only scheduled support calls out in advance. After investigating, Trend Micro uncovered that the employee who had since been fired, had access to customer support database that contained names, email addresses, support ticket numbers, and some phone numbers. Trend Micro said it disabled the unauthorized account, and law enforcement has been notified. So that's a lot of insider threats this week, yeah? Yeah, it's going around all over the place. And hey, sometimes it's not all tied to nation-state espionage. Sometimes it's just people wanting to make a buck. I mean, we've seen this outside cybersecurity before where uh, engineers or somebody working on some new project gets an offer uh, from some other company, some other rival, and tries to take all their information with them. I mean, that's – it happens. It's not – Legal, but it happens yeah. all the time. Um, yeah, when, um, but yeah, that uh, receiving unannounced phone calls from people impersonating Trend Micro support staff, that's not great. I mean, also, now that I say that out loud, I wonder how successful that was because if I'm getting a phone call, it just sounds like a robocall to me. Like if I picked up the phone and somebody was like, oh, hey, this is Trend Micro support staff calling you about X, Y, and Z, I, they wouldn't even get to Z. Like I'd hang up the phone and Unless you had a ticket filed and you were waiting for a callback. Yeah, I guess. But at the same time, wouldn't you have a relationship? Like if you're getting those phone calls, wouldn't you have a relationship with somebody with Trend Micro? Like you know that call is coming and it would be like, oh, my my contact at Trend Micro, Joe, is calling me for – for that, that's who I expect my phone calls from. And then you get a call from Bob from Trend Micro. And it's like, oh, well, wait, is that, what's, what's happening here? I don't know, because if you've got IT support from a big company and you're in a big company, I mean, who knows who's calling you back on your ticket? Yeah, I, I mean, guess. My, my person with who manages our IT, um, well, we have an in-house person working for that company when it's something big. You know, I might talk to five or six different people. Right. And I don't know. Right. And I mean, and that was part of the, I mean, that's what tipped off the scam overall. I mean, Trend Micro only schedules the calls in advance. So if you're getting an impromptu right. call, that's... A huge red flag. So they caught it, but I mean, yeah, insider threats. Like it's it it happens. It absolutely uh, happens, and it's really tough from a technological perspective. To, yeah, to stop. It's this a, kind of it's stuff. really a step above the guy who continuously calls me to let me know my Windows machine is has a virus and they can fix it for me. Right. No, this is somebody that's actually <laughs> put some yeah put some <laughs> quality into their scam. Yeah. The accused Capital One hacker, we talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago uh, about 
the the plea of uh, release to a halfway house over jail, and it looks like that she is going to be able to serve in that halfway house. She is scheduled to be released from jail. Uh, she was released from jail earlier this week after the judge determined that the 33-year-old defendant does not pose enough of a threat to the community to warrant her incarceration. Thompson, who is transgender, was arrested in July for allegedly hacking Capital One to access information on about 106 million people and has been held at a men's detention center outside Seattle in the months since. U.S. District George Robert Lasnick previously told attorneys he was very concerned about whether Thompson would receive adequate mental health treatment from the Bureau of Prisons. She's now required to move to a federal halfway house, avoid using electronic devices without explicit permission from the court, participate in location monitoring, and a range of other conditions. Jen, it looks like that humanity angle we talked about before won out. It did, and it's a good thing, right? A 33-year-old woman has no should not be in a men's prison. Right. And look, I, I, with the terms that they set, halfway house, n- no computers, wear an ankle bracelet, and show up show up on time, like be where you need to be, do what you need to do, and life will be just a little bit easier than it could be. Like you, life's going to be pretty bad <laughs> for uh, a couple months, and if you're found guilty, it's, it's still going to be bad, but at the same time, um, the, the, again, there is that humanity side of it, so – uh, I'm glad that the the court didn't just you know lock her away and throw away the key, which is what we've seen in some other cases. Well, and hopefully um, the court system, the U.S. figures out something to do in cases like this because you have to solve it in some right. way. Right. So the National Security Agency's warning last week about nation-state actors exploiting their vulnerability and confluence were merely as an old piece of news that the Cybersecurity Committee already had on its radar. It also appeared to tip off new exploration of the vulnerabilities. Hackers have been dramatically stepping up the pace and persistence of their attacks on the popular workplace collaboration software in recent weeks, according to new private sector research. Keep in mind, Confluence warned about the vulnerability this spring, but according to the new data, just weeks before the NSA issued the alert about the known vulnerability, hackers began exploiting the vulnerability two to three times per day. Craig, what's the lesson learned here? That when... The NSA puts out a release. They're not just doing it for a PR hit. Like (laughs) when the NSA puts out an advisory, you should listen because there's probably something else going on. Are they going to tell you about it? No. Probably not. They're they're probably going to classify it to the moon. Like that's that's just the way that it is right now. But – at the same time, by just putting out the advisory, that's a huge red flag to say, hmm, okay, this was something that Altassian let us know about in the spring, and now it's three months later and the NSA is you know, uh, resounding the alarm. If yeah. I haven't fixed it, you should probably fix it. And that's what – what happened? Uh, there was some other stuff going on. It wasn't just w- – when initially the the company put out the notice that there was a bug, it was mainly attributed to people trying to uh, crypto jack um, systems in order to mine, mine Bitcoin or whatever. What – looked like it happened this time around was that nation states actually glommed on to the vulnerability to do whatever it is that they wanted to do. So um, there was a very, very big uptick and a very, very uh, different impact in what the community was seeing in the vulnerability. So that's what led the NSA to push that notice out there. So yeah, 
<laughs> that's that's the lesson to be learned here. The, the NSA and it's it, it, just the notice itself should be enough reason for anybody affected by the notice to say, uh, okay, let's make let's check everything here. Right. Let's let's look over everything and make sure we're okay. So on the business side of things this week, uh, two interesting raises. Red Marlin, a Los Altos, California-based deep learning powered fraud prevention company protecting the world's leading brands from counterfeit activity, secured $10 million in Series A funding. The round was led by TomVest Ventures and Crosslink Capital with participation from Cyber Mentor Fund, Nexus Venture Partners, and Rain Capital. Immersive Labs, a UK-based on-demand and gamified cyber skills platform, raised $40 million in funding. Summit Partners led the round and was joined by investors including Goldman Sachs. And then on the acquisition side of things, email security company Proofpoint agreed to purchase insider threat detection company Observe IT for $225 million in cash. Uh, Observe IT promises insightful data loss by monitoring employees, gauging trends in user activity, and watching user behavior on client networks. Uh, and then Sumo Logic, an event management firm, also announced the acquisition of security operations startup JAST. Terms of that deal were not disclosed. Uh, Jen, Observe IT, um, good week for them to to great make <laughs> to make that. a name for themselves I mean, on wow. acquisition, right? Yeah, that's a great week for that, right? It's been insider threat after insider threat. So good on them. And, you know, uh, interesting too, the the companies that got uh, these raises, we've seen other companies in this space. I Mm -hmm. mean, Red Marlin, um, counterfeiting brand protection. We're starting to see that a lot. I believe uh, we talked to uh, Cipient, uh, Cipient Black reminds me uh, of a lot of what they're doing, even though Cipient Black is really concentrating more on the personal level Mm -hmm. than on the enterprise level and immersive labs. Uh, the on-demand gamified cyber skills. We just talked to Keenan Skelly a couple weeks ago from Sir Cadence, and uh, it sounds like they have uh, competition. So every time it seems like we find uh, a good idea, a new interesting early-stage venture, there are other companies right behind it trying to uh, elbow into the marketplace. Yeah, look, we're, we'll be at RSA, right, in a few months, and you know we're bound to see 20 to 30 companies doing really every aspect of cybersecurity. All housed together. I mean, nothing like the trade floor at RSA. <laughs> All right. And with that, we will go to our interview with Casey. Casey stopped by our office uh, today, and we're going to talk to Casey. I know we talked to Casey at Gartner uh, a few months ago, but uh, there's just been a ton of news since then. And Casey will break it all down with us. Check it out. Okay. Joining us now, uh, familiar guest, Casey Ellis founder, CTO of Bug Crowd. Uh, thanks for joining us on short notice, too. Thanks for having me. So why in D.C.? So we ran a uh, hacking the election, hacking uh, elections uh, panel uh, last night. Um, incredible group of people that, uh, that, that came together for it. Uh, you know, myself, uh, DHS, uh, NASS, Dominion Voting Systems, Rapid7. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was just a, a really good conversation. I think the reason that, that we're we're pushing on it is, um, you know, this whole idea of like it's time for us to actually move on from from fixating on on voting machines uh, and actually talk about the overall ecosystem issue uh, that exists with with elections in 2019. I think not just in the US but globally, right? Um, and I think you know the other side of it is is really this kind of um, 
hysteria almost uh, that is you know focused on these voting machines and the very specific piece. And there, you know, there's stuff that needs to be done there. I'm not saying it's that's not true, of but course. but there's this broader issue of okay, if we freak voters out to the point where they become vulnerable to being scared into not voting in the first place, like what are we what are we doing? Um, so, so it was really a, a conversation around like what is the broader set of systems that are involved here and how vulnerable is the voting population to the, to the narrative of hacking itself? How do we actually resolve that? Right. I think it's a good thing that we're starting to see the conversations focus more on everything else that goes into the voting process, particularly voter registration systems, because yep. look, we can talk about what happened in 2016 and we've written articles about the, the voting machines and everything that's gone on with that. But yeah. the voter registration systems to me, I mean, that's what was targeted. That's what was targeted in 2016. So it's a little bit surprising to me that we haven't seen more concentration on the threat there since everything there is really internet based. Yeah, I mean, I, I can sort of understand why, because you're absolutely right. Like voting machines, you know, you, you compare the, the frequency of voting machines versus voter registration systems in you know, the Mueller report, for example, and you're exactly right. Like the, the, the web-based stuff um, is, is far more commonly targeted in practice historically. There's other stuff as well. There's e-poll books. There's you know the uh, the live update systems. There's even <clears throat> even when you get back down to um, you know the uh, the issues around you know social media that have been probably more broadly discussed as well. You know the thing of it is that uh, the you know machines are easy to talk about. They're, they're they're easy to understand. I think most voters have have interacted with them. You know the the, the conversation and the story around them is just easier to get into in the first place. If you're talking about you know, SQL injection in a website in, you know, a state that you don't live in, for the average reader, for the average person who's understanding that, it's a far more abstract con concept to understand. So I get why the voting machine conversation's taking off, taken off and the other stuff hasn't. But yeah, as you say, it's, it's a good thing that we're, uh, we're coming around to the rest of it as well. So what was the, the wow factor in the panel? What needs to happen next? Um, there was a lot of focus on really the uh, the use of, I mean, there was a lot of conversation around the mitigations that are already in place because there's really two sides to this. It's like, what can we practically get done ahead of 2020? Uh, but then what do we need to think about doing systemically going forward as well? Um, you know, one of the big things that came out was really this idea that, um, you know, the, uh, the, the role of the security researcher, the role of vulnerability disclosure, not just as a way to identify vulnerabilities in these systems, but also, you know, if it's like pre-game, uh, pre-game day, and and there's you know narratives starting to come out that the election's been hacked and you just shouldn't show up. Um, there's something that can be pointed to for the average voter that they're going to understand. Like they might not get, you know, ASLR or you know whatever's been done on a machine or you know mitigations on websites, but the idea of the fact that we've established neighborhood watch for these systems and that's been running for a long time that's a point of comfort and a point of, you know, hey, there's, there are things that are going on that you can understand that have been done to secure your vote in this election, therefore still turn up. And by the way, there's a lot of other stuff that's behind it as fail-safes too. And it's definitely, as I said before, not perfect. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. But, you know, from, from our perspective, um, you know, the, uh, the, the threat to, like, fundamental trust in the democratic process is actually the bigger vulnerability here. So you talked about vulnerability disclosure there. 
Um, and there was a really interesting story two weeks ago that we ran. DHS uh, might be pushing out a binding operational directive where they're going to force agencies to stand up their own vulnerability disclosure programs. And when we published the story, uh, I found it very interesting that more agencies haven't had that program out there. So with you being an expert in this area, uh, can you enlighten us a little bit on how hard it is to stand up a vulnerability disclosure program? Because, look, we know that that just doesn't mean bug bounties. That's just one aspect of it. But it, it seems where, you know, on the front end of it, if you're a researcher, if you're looking at it from just an internet user, it's just an email address. But there's a lot that goes into that email address. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. And to that point, I think the fact that, you know, vulnerable disclosure, crowdsource security and, and bug bounty are often lumped into the general category of bug bounties is part of the problem. Um, you know, our, our industry has enjoyed, I think, um, yeah, you know, the tailwinds and and the top like the topical nature of bug bounties for the past couple of years as people get more comfortable with the idea of a hacker being helpful and not just harmful. But the downside of it has been that everything you know when you start talking about vulnerable disclosure or bounty or whatever else, the automatic assumption is you have to do what Facebook's doing, and you know <laughs> and, and go off and you know offer a ton of money and and have the entire internet come and you know and then on the back end figure out how to have all of those conversations at the same time and then obviously deal with the issues and remediate them in a timely fashion as well, which is, you know, for anyone, frankly, um, who's looking at it for the first time, we actually don't even recommend that as the first place to start. Like we have people come to us and say, I want to launch a public program tomorrow. I want to have my bounty set at like blah, blah, blah. Slow down. And we'll turn around and say, no, you don't. Like yeah, that's right. actually Slow a really down. bad idea. Right. Like if you, if you do that, you're, you're not giving yourself an opportunity, like the likelihood of, of you know, the, the feedback actually breaking the systems you're intending to establish and protect is is pretty high so so i think that's one of the reasons to your to your kind of inferred question there around you know the agencies that aren't doing this or thinking about this i think it's partly education it's partly a confusion issue um you know in terms of of how it how it works and how it can happen you know there is there is work that goes into it as i mentioned i think the idea of uh you know rolling uh, like crawl then walk then run you know, getting, getting an overall idea of your baseline level of risk. Usually people that are doing this for the first time, there's some sort of estimation of how secure or insecure they are. Um, and for the ones that think they are really secure, they're usually the ones that need to crawl the most because usually that's not entirely true. Um, they've just not gotten that feedback before. So baselining on, on you know, how much work is this going to be, like where are we actually at, then obviously figuring out what's our ability to ingest this information. Uh, I think in the case of a VDP, you know, there are ways, it's almost like, uh, you know, quiet, louder, loudest. Like the idea of establishing uh, a properly managed security app inbox and putting a policy, uh, which, you know, hopefully includes bilateral safe harbor and all of those good things. Of course. Out on the, out on the site. Um, but doing it in a way where you're not promoting it, you know, you, you're not necessarily putting it up on, uh, you know, promoted pages, uh, you know, promoted um, kind of anchor things like what, what BugCrowd does necessarily as a first go. And then just getting used to it from that point. And then, you know, getting to the point where actually you are comfortable as an organization to start to drive awareness to your program and let people know that this is something that you're doing. You know, that progression, I think, is the sanest way for, for really anyone to do it, let alone, you know, some of these agencies that have IT that's been sitting out there on the internet for 30 or 40 years. Like, it's going to be some work to get used to that. Of course. I think. 
That sounds really intimidating, though, for somebody who hasn't done it before. So how do you find out that first step? How do you figure it out? Very, Where do I go? Yeah, very, I mean, what we do very practically uh, and what we've seen work, you know, just in general is, is basically, um, you know, for in the case of vulnerability disclosure, it's, it's what, I, what I just uh, recommended then. Starting off with, you know, really what you need for a vulnerable disclosure program is, a, is an intake method. You need a policy that's viewable by the public internet, and then you need a response process on the back end. Um, that policy doesn't need to be like promoted it can it can be there and if people are looking for it they can find it like that's that satisfies what needs to get done to establish the process uh, i think that's you know something that everyone can do pretty quickly um, to get going like security ad as an e as a as an inbox to receive security feedback it's mandated by rsc anywhere it's recommended it's meant to be mandated but you know it's rfc's not everyone follows those <laughs> um on, on the on the bounty side, getting more proactive about it, the way um, the way that we approach it and the way that we've seen people do this with with success is you do it privately. You you, you basically you know figure out to what degree you need to trust the individuals that you're actually proactively inviting. Um, you set your rewards appropriately for what you're trying to test, uh, and then the whole thing gets done. It's it's like a mini bug bounty with you know ten or twenty people in it that are operating under NDA, as opposed to and as distinct from a bug bounty program where it's public or a vulnerability disclosure program where, the, where really the goal is to be able to have an avenue for feedback from the internet. So like that's your baselining opportunity there and you get to do it in a way that if you find out there's more than you thought there would be or you know, you're choking on the bugs on, on, on the back end or whatever else, you've got then the opportunity to do that. Um, I think fairly proactively at that point because you're going to have gotten like risk feedback that you need to action on. So there's still heat under it, which is good. Uh, but you can do it in a way that's not under duress. So switching gears, uh, there was a really big story this week about uh, two former Twitter employees uh, basically being agents of the Saudi uh, royal family. That is and a big pivot. Yeah. Uh, hey, well, and I mean, it Let's just go. goes, it just, yeah, it just goes to show the sort of the gravity of the story there because from, look, from a security perspective, we talk so much about, you know, the underlying code and the underlying technology. And when it comes to, you know, an insider threat, this is a different threat altogether. I mean, from your perspective uh, as, as somebody that has been in charge of a company, obviously th there's a very minute chance that you're ever going to be, you know, uh, or you're ever going to employ somebody that is a willing um, asset to uh, a, a nation state. But at the same time, like, how do you really game plan for an insider threat that way? I mean, is there a way to even do that? Because I can't imagine, it doesn't matter whether it's small, medium, or business, that's just not in your threat model. Or, or, or a large one. Uh, and, and really, to your point, it, it does, like the gating function on this is good hiring practice. Um, you know, making sure that, uh, you know, whatever, to whatever degree checks need to be done for the people that you're bringing into your organization. I mean, actually step zero on this is threat modeling in the first place. Like who's gonna come after me? What do I have? Like what do I need to be most concerned about? To what degree of height do I need my fence to exist right. to deter the type of attacker that I expect, right? So there's that part. But then, you know, making sure that the right checks are put in place for the people that you're bringing on board. Like obviously with the data that BugCrowd handles, we do a lot of that. Um, I think just in terms of the general issue itself, 
you know, and you talked about it, I, you, you kind of laid that up quite uh, succinctly in terms of, you know, focus on vulnerabilities and, and like shiny, technical, interesting things. Um, it's very easy to forget the fact that attackers are economically rational. You know, whether they're a nation state or a cyber criminal, and even, frankly, you know, you, you hacktivists and, and your kind of like hobby hacker persona, they all have an investment of, of you know, cash, time, effort, expertise that's going into achieving their outcome. And if it ends up being cheaper to try to co-opt an employee for $20,000 in, in order to get a reliable output from the operation that you're trying to complete, and that's actually more rational to you than to try to break in through the front door or, or use IT, then yeah, it makes sense as, as, a, as a way to get what you, what you need from it. So you know, how do you defend against that? It's, it's really, you know, back to what I said before, making sure that you've got some, some good stuff around the people that you bring into the business in the first place. But I do think beyond that, it comes down to like, what are you, you know, are you building your business as though it's already broken? Um, is, is there like assuming that um, there is a breach of some sort, insider or outsider, containment of that damage, uh, which is kind of a table topping thing and, and goes back to the threat modeling piece that we spoke about before. And then it's honestly a lot of the really simple stuff like, is there you know, multi-factor authentication in place for systems that house critical data? Is there audit and accountability trails to those things? Do you have logs set up to be able to go back and see when this has happened? And can you go a step further and you know, be able to detect when, when things are being accessed that shouldn't be? Um, yeah. And we also saw on the news that an employee moved 29 million bucks per an email. Like, how is that still happening? I think, you know, it's, yeah, this is all very easy to talk about. Um, but the reality is that, you know, there, there are almost infinite possibilities of, of the kind of things people can do for gain and the kind of things from the outside, from a threat standpoint, that might be able to, you know, realize gain from things that an organization has that they haven't even thought of yet. So, yeah, that, I mean, 20, 29 million bucks in an email, that seems like a fairly simple thing to do. But, you know, from the very complex to the very simple, this is not thinking that, that has been baked into how people build systems, if that makes sense. Like th this whole idea of getting, you know, adversarial feedback and saying, okay, you, your job as a builder is to make the thing work, um, which is hard as it is. Um, but then, you know, our job as a, as a breaker persona is to try to figure out all the things that you've not necessarily thought of that are unintended as you've gone off and built that thing. I think that's that kind of feedback loop and that kind of cycle of thinking that it's establishing itself in pockets and it's obviously a big part of you know what we, we believe and try to do with Bug Crowd, but it's still you know not the normal thing yet. Casey, we end every interview on Curiosity with a very random question. I look forward to these always. Um, what is the most interesting thing that you've read about that's non- Cybersecurity. Since we've last talked, we last talked. I believe in like June. I I consume data like a fire hose. So I think <laughs> distilling that distilling that down. I mean, Twitter on any given day is probably the answer to that question. Um, an example of that. Well, okay. Speaking of Twitter, I saw you recently <laughs> tweeting about the OK Boomer meme. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's been sure. really big. So <laughs> yeah. it's sounding board. I'll give you a sounding board on OK Boomer. Go. All right, so I believe that every generation thinks that the generation that's older than it is, is stupid. Um, 
and that the older generation thinks that the generation younger than it is naive. And, and you know, part of what happens when that goes on is the, the wisdom of the older generation gets blocked from the new and you know, the innovation and the drive of, of the new generation gets blocked from the old. Like there's, there's a, one of my favorite quotes is there's two types of fool. Um, the one that says this is old and therefore good and the one that says this is new and therefore better. So like I use OK Boomer ironically all the time because I think it's just objectively hilarious as a, as a meme. Um, but the sentiment behind it is, uh, is something that I think, um, you know, if we could improve the situation of like the, the flow of wisdom down through generations, I think we'd all be in a much better place. Right. Yeah, of course. All right, there you go. Cool. Your sounding board. Casey. Didn't read that on Twitter, but hey, here you go. There you go. Right. Uh, Casey, thank you very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Likewise. Cheers. Thanks again to Casey for joining us today. Uh, I had to get a thoughts on OK Boomer. I, I knew he was tweeting about I it. Mean, I honestly, knew he had some thoughts that uh, were out there. Who doesn't have thoughts on it now? <laughs> I swear to God. It's, it's the thing. Everybody has an opinion on it. Um, okay. For the tech, non-tech, whatever, everything that we've talked about today, thank you very much for joining us. As always, stay curious. <laughs>